Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Life Without Limits podcast. I'm your host, Casey Stutzman. We are recording here at the Performance Locker in Alpena, Michigan, nestled on the shores of the beautiful Lake Huron as I am looking outside and seeing it snow-covered and hopefully freezing soon so that we can walk on it and punch holes in it and pull fish out of it. So these are the things that I'm looking forward to very much. If you live in a warm area, you don't understand, and I can't explain it to you. So um, today we're going to do a question and answers. So we put uh, some posts up on various social media. I put some stuff on my Facebook, Instagram, as well as the Performance Locker pages uh, a week and a half, two weeks ago-ish, and um, looking to collect some questions that you had regarding health, fitness, things of that nature. We had some wonderful questions come in, um, some really, really, really good ones that I actually want to dive into a little bit here today. So I'm not going to do a ton of them, but there's a few that I did highlight and want to touch base on, and we will definitely be doing more of these in the future. And at the end of the episode, I'll tell you how you can get in touch with us. And if you want to submit questions, we'd love to talk about those. Um, this is a, I really like to hear what kind of things you guys are interested in and what you're curious about. Um, as we sit here, you know, I sometimes picking topics, I pick things that are either top of mind for me or things that I feel are important to talk about, but it's really helpful to get an idea of, of where, where are you guys coming from? What do you want to hear about? What are questions? What are areas of confusion? So I'm going to start off, I'm going to start with one that we got from Instagram from at underscore zeitgeist. So he says, Hey, Casey. When you hit your mental limit during a workout, feeling your body burn, wanting to just sit down and shoot the dot, 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 how do you break through, push past the pain to keep going? Your personal strategies, perspectives, and experiences. And then he put in parentheses, you didn't say easy question, hope you're well. So thank you, Michael, for submitting that one from Iron Cycle in Minnesota, where I had the wonderful opportunity to teach a real rider um, course a couple years ago now. So it's been a minute since I've been there, but really awesome facility, great people. Um, so I was really excited to get your question. So thanks a lot for sending that, Mike. Um, that is, gosh, that's such a complicated answer. And I've thought a lot about this one and it's such a thoughtful question. And one thing that I want to preference before we, we dive into that and something that we talk about here all the time, when it comes to training, There is a huge difference between pain and suffering. In training, pain is never okay. Ever, 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 ever. So pain is your body's way of trying to communicate with you that something is wrong. It's something it doesn't like. It's something it wants you to stop doing. Just the same way the smoke alarm communicates to you, there's a problem, there's a fire, and you need to take actions to correct that situation. If you don't, there's significant consequences. Pain works very much the same way. Pain is telling you it doesn't like something the body's doing. It's in essence, one of the only ways that your body internally can help motivate your behavior is through a pain response. So when your body hurts, when something hurts, when it is sharp and shooting, that's trying to tell us something. Now, I know this might be confusing because for years we've talked about, well, in fitness, no pain, no gain and push through pain and da, 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 da. I think what we've done is we've confused pain with suffering. Suffering is completely fine in any training environment. And in fact, suffering is something we want to get into when we're in a training environment. Suffering is discomfort. Suffering is not pleasurable. Suffering is I'm working and I desperately want this to stop. My lungs are burning. I'm tired. But suffering and pain are not the same thing. I am never okay with pain in a training environment. I am 100% fine with you suffering when you're training. How do you know the difference between the two? If you're performing an exercise or activity, when you stop the activity, if the discomfort instantly stops, that's suffering. So if I'm on my bike and if I'm climbing a really, really shitty hill and my legs are burning and my lungs are burning and it takes everything just to keep going and I just don't want to be there anymore, but the second I stop, I instantly feel better, that's suffering, that's okay. That's a totally fine thing to push through. If I'm climbing that same hill and my knee is screaming at me and I stop pedaling and my knee continues to scream or the screaming gets louder, that is pain. That's something I don't want to push through. So 
Um, I, I mean, I could really dive down the rabbit hole on this. Being able to determine the difference between pain and suffering, like that's why we do the FMS. That's why we take people through the movement screens because we can highlight areas that we don't want to push because it's probably going to take us to that pain threshold versus areas that we can push into that discomfort or suffering threshold. So I know that's a little off topic for the question, but it's definitely something that I wanted to, to note. Um, it is a very, very common thing that I don't think serves people at all. And I think it is a, if there's one thing that I could completely change and erase from the history books of the fitness industry, it's getting rid of that whole no pain, no gain mentality. Cause I've seen it, I've seen it betray far too many people. It is, I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's serving us as an industry. I don't think it's serving people as a population. I've seen way too many people that have pushed through pain for so long and then gotten to a point where either they have to get rid of activities they love or there was surgery or some other medical intervention because they kept pushing through that pain. So I, I think that's a very important thing to note. Now, kind of back to the question and the true nature of the question that's also a really difficult answer is because to be honest with you, sometimes I don't. Um, as I've gotten older, and I'm 38 now, so I'm, I'm finally to the point that I realize I'm not in my 20s and I'm feeling the differences between physically being in my 20s and physically not being in my 20s and things that didn't used to hurt now do or things that I recovered from quicker now I don't. As I've gotten older, as I've I've tried to learn to keep my ego in check a little bit more. I've realized that just because I can push through something doesn't mean I always should push through something. And sometimes I guess I've, I'd like to think that I've gotten better listening to my body. And there are some days that I'm suffering and I can push through that. There's other days that something's not right. Something's off. Maybe I ate shitty the day before. Maybe... I'm running on sleep, maybe stress levels are high, maybe I'm burning the candle, but whatever it is. But you know, some days it's just not there. And I've learned over the years, and this is just for me personally, if I can recognize those days, those are the days it's okay to back off a little bit. Um, and I've tried to let that guide some of my training a little bit more. I've gotten better doing that with especially endurance and long distance type activities. So for example, um, let's say I've planned on a Wednesday afternoon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a road bike ride or a mountain bike ride. And I get out to the trail or I get on the road and I'm feeling great. Just things are clicking, things are firing, pace is good, conditions are good. Those are the days that I just really, I try and hammer it. And those are the days that become suffer fest because I, I feel like whatever it is, like there's a combination of things that are in place and I'm obviously feeling well rested, I'm feeling well nourished stress levels are probably good. Those are the days that I feel like it's appropriate. I'm going to get the most out of really hammering it and really suffer fest type sessions. Um, if I go out there and if I start putting the pedal down and if it's just sluggish, if it's not there, if it's not there mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it is, it's not that I pack up and go home, but it's also not the day that I'm trying to set a land speed record. So I've tried to listen to my body more and get more in tune with, you know, what are the days and the times that are good to get after it? And what are the days and times that are not? And the reason I've done that, and I know that sounds like a cop out and I know that sounds like a, well, you know, well, you can't just go out and work hard on the days that you feel good because you're not going to feel good every day. And that's a true statement. And that's why there's so much nuance to this question. And I really feel that where someone's at in their training history, background, experience really plays into it. Um, if you're talking with someone who's brand new, just getting off the couch and needs to learn how to be uncomfortable, that's a different conversation. If you're talking to someone who's been in sports and athletics and training for decades, that's a different conversation. And I would say to the, to the latter person, having the discipline to know when when to back it off is actually almost more important. Um, I've ran into so many athletes and so many people, and I put myself in this category, that to just put your nose to the grindstone and drive through any and all things is actually a very comfortable environment. But I've learned in the past that doesn't always serve me. There's been so many times that 
I had something scheduled, whether it be a workout, an activity, and it was scheduled at this intensity or this volume or this duration or whatever it is, and I woke up that morning and I felt like poop and things weren't clicking and things weren't firing, and but it was on the schedule, so I did it anyway because that's what you do. And then I wrecked myself and or I got sick or I, if I was already in a depleted state and then I hammered myself usually the results were not positive. Whereas looking back, I would have been better on those days and times to maybe give myself a little bit of a break, maybe give myself a little bit of a rest or a little bit of a reprise, maybe do yoga that day instead of the heavy lift that I had planned and then give myself an opportunity to build back up and then hammer it once I've been able to recover a little bit more. And I think a lot of that just comes with time and maturity. Um, and that, that's tough. You know, it's, I think part of that also comes with not being 20 anymore. Because when you're 20, you can get away with a lot of stuff that you can't when you start to get into your 30s. So I, I know this is kind of a non-answer, but I feel like there, there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance to that. I think who you're talking to, where they're at, what their training experience is, what their background is, is going to play into that a lot. And Again, on the other end of the spectrum, I've worked with people and you know we've all been here at one way or another, whether it be a new activity or whatnot, we have to learn how to be uncomfortable. We have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable and there's a lot to be said for that. And <clears throat> so I don't wanna make it sound like I'm copping out on this answer, but I feel like over the years, I've, I've learned to be uncomfortable and I can deal with discomfort and I can deal with suffering. <clears throat> For me personally, it's learning how to better listen to my body and realize when that environment is not going to be advantageous to my long-term self, whether that be within that week, that month, or years down the road. Um, I've learned that just pushing through any and all obstacles and barriers when my body is trying to tell me that maybe now is not the day or the time is not wise all the time. So... um, now, that being said, let's get back to kind of some of the suffering stuff. I, you know, I wish I had an answer. I really don't. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the other part of the question is, is when you hit your mental limit during a workout, right? You're feeling your body burn. You're wanting to sit down. Like you just, every part of you wants to stop. How do you keep going? I don't know how to answer that. Um, and I really feel like if I did know how to answer that, I'd be a lot richer than I am right now because... <laughs> I'd have some sort of book or some sort of seminar or something. In fact, I think if anybody knew how to answer that question, but I just, I don't think we do. I think that's, that's another thing that I think just comes with time and years and maturity. I will say this. Um, the human brain is hardwired for fear. And what I mean by that is our brain does a really good job Fearing the unknown because the unknown means danger and danger means possible death. So when you look at how we think and how we process thoughts and how we process challenges and new things, the human brain has the amazing capability to take anything and make it look and seem and a thousand times worse than it actually is. And I think that's... Evidence to that point is whenever you do something that you're really nervous about, whenever you finish it, you're always like, that was not so bad, or that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So in an effort to keep us alive and keep us safe, our brain is going to look at things that are unknown, and it's going to look at all the ways it could potentially go wrong and almost try and talk us out of those things. When we do those things that scare us, we come out stronger or more able to to deal with them on the other end of it because we're like, wow, that's not as bad as I thought. I think any, the more you do that, the more you experience those types of situations, I believe the more confidence you have going into new ones. So if I'm going to a new trailhead on my, back this up, I live in Michigan. Michigan is not known for hilly country, right? It's flat. We have one mountain bike trail around this area that has any type of topography, but compared to out west and in the Rockies and some hiller, hillier areas in the country, you know, we don't have long sustained climbs. We don't have long bombing downhills that you have to be sharp and present for every turn for long periods of time. 
so I had done a lot of riding in this area and I had gotten a chance to do some riding out west and I was terrified because for the reasons that I just mentioned. Like I'm like, this is a brand new environment that I just, I don't feel like I'm adequately prepared for. And almost to the point that I didn't do it. It was almost crippling because I was by myself and I had limited time and I didn't know the trail and what if this happened and what if I fell and there's no one else to help and I don't, uh, I don't know the area and all these other different things. Well, when I got out and did it and finished, it was like, wow, that's not as bad as I thought. And then there was more confidence going into the next time and the next time and the next time. And there was some parts that were significantly challenging. There was some times that I would succumb to putting my foot down. You know, I'm on these long sustained climbs and, and the mental would win over and I'd put my foot down. And then after doing that a couple of times, I'm like, you know what? It, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm fine, right? Every time I put my foot down, I'd realize I'm alive. I'm okay. I'm just uncomfortable. And that would help me the next time go a little bit longer or push a little bit harder or go a little bit more because I could constantly remind myself what I was experiencing was discomfort. And discomfort is something that I can deal with. It's something that I can push through. And it's something that only gets worse if I fixate on it. Now, the reason that I know I'm kind of answering this question, but it's a non-answer because you only learn that through time and experience. And there's no way to just say, well, this is the system that I use to push through mental barriers because it's not how it works. At least for me, that's not how it works. Um, Another thing I experienced some time ago that reiterated that same thing is when I was learning to free dive and this was like two, three years ago and I was taking a course and we were doing static breath holds in the pool and the instructor's like, well, we're going to work up to a three minute static breath hold. I'm like, you're out of your fucking mind. Like under no circumstances, (laughs) this is my internal thought. So we get set up, we do the one minute and I finished. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was not bad. That was surprisingly doable. And I was so excited. And then we did the two minute and that was hard. It I did it, but it was extremely difficult, especially those last like 15, 30 seconds. And our instructor kept telling us that what you're feeling is not, you're not running out of air. It's the buildup of CO2. It's your body wanting to get rid of CO2. You have plenty of oxygen. Everything is fine. You're okay. It's just mental. You can do it. Just push through it. Just go somewhere else mentally. And So sure enough, we get to the three-minute breath hold. I I think I made it to like two minutes and 30 seconds. And at about two minutes, I'm like, I'm dying. At two minutes and 15 seconds, I'm like, I'm dead. At two minutes and 30 seconds, I'm like, I'm past dead and I'm somewhere in the, the seventh ring of hell. And I finally succumb and I pop out of the water. And the second I popped my head out of the water and took a breath, I instantly felt better and I went, shit. I, I could have done it. I could, like, I was... I'm fine. Like, and that was the thing that washed over me when I came out of the water is just going, I'm fine. Like I thought it was, it was new. It was scary. You know, the environment was very supportive, but when I popped out of the water, I'm like, I'm okay. And knowing that I'm okay and knowing that I was going to continue to be okay. The next time I was able to try and do that, I was able to hit the three minute mark. No problem. Because when that feeling started creeping up, I could just remind myself you are okay. You're completely fine. So I hope that answers your question, Mike. Um, Those are the type of things that work for me. And I think like with so many things, the more that we put ourselves in those environments, the better we get at handling them. And I think where people go wrong or where people struggle is avoiding those discomfort or uncomfortable environments and that we never really learn how to deal with them when they arise or when they do, we quit really early. But I would also say that it is some, it's, it's, it's like a callus. It's something that builds over time. And it's not fair to expect someone who's brand new to be able to push through discomfort the same way that more of a, let's call them seasoned veteran could. So really great question. I'm glad you asked that one. I, that was a long ramble on one question, so you can see why I'm not get, taking a bunch of them today. Um, but I, I hope you like the answer to that one. So uh, the next couple come from our very good friend, Mr. Steve Jacobson, who's actually been on the podcast before, so I don't think he'll mention or mind me mentioning him by name. Um, you can actually go back and check out an episode that I did with him and Brad. They have their own podcast, Hot Take from the Kitchen, where we actually talked about the Avengers of all things because it's my podcast and I can talk about whatever I want. So, nah, nah. Um, 
Uh, Steve's been a good friend for a long time, and he has some really, really thoughtful questions that I wanted to dive into. Well, yeah, so <laughs> uh, one is, what is the most humorous in your eyes, excuse me, in my eyes, what is the most humorous exercise craze that has ever swept America? The thigh master, the shake weight? Uh, and then he has a great idea here that I'd actually like to hear your thoughts on. So when we post this on Facebook, comment below in, in the comment area. Steve suggests doing a March Madness style bracket and maybe a little podcast series regarding what is the single best infomercial fitness product of all time. I kind of love this idea. So I want to hear what you think about it. And maybe you could comment on what you think the types of equipment we should put in the bracket are. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's a great idea. We're, we'll, we might run with that one. Uh, my favorite in terms of funniness would be the shake weight. I think it's really hard to beat that one. Um, for very obvious reasons that I don't have to go into detail on here because we've all seen the infomercials and we know exactly what it looks like the people are doing. So if you haven't gotten a chance, there was a South Park episode that they did regarding the shake weight. That is pretty much what all of us are thinking. That was perfectly and beautifully done in South Park fashion. So I, I would highly recommend checking that out because it was very funny. Thighmaster, I mean, you know, you gotta, wow. A lot of nostalgia there. I think... For me, the shake weight's a little bit funnier because we that came out in an age of information where we kind of knew better. Um, <laughs> the thigh master came out so long ago that there was a lot about you know training and developing muscle that just we didn't know as a general population. And I, so yeah, I, I think something like that worked really well because Suzanne Summers, who had great legs, and oh, if she uses that, clearly that's the trick. I feel like we've learned a lot more now. So the fact that people actually still bought a shake weight is kind of funny to me. Um, that being said, there is actually some significant benefit in science to aspects of the shake weight, meaning that, that it's a dynamic load, right? So instead of having something static like a weight plate or a dumbbell or a kettlebell that's very predictable, having something that's oscillating and moving and always in an... In, uh, less than predictable fashion, what that does neurologically is actually extremely beneficial. In fact, we use a tool here called the Surge that's a big giant tube full of water that gives us a very similar training effect to something that you might get from a shake weight that is extremely valuable for what we call reactive core stability, meaning there's some sort of force or something that happens and your body has to react to it in an ever-changing environment and learn how to stabilize. So there's there's applications for that type of resistance that are really, really, really good. Uh, where the shake weight falls drastically short is it's such a one-trick pony, right? So it only gyrates in one particular direction. And just the way you hold it and the way that you work, I mean, biomechanically, there's nothing sound about it. So it's one of those things, like the idea is kind of there, just in terms of execution, it fell way, way, way short. But having a dynamic resistance can be very, very beneficial. There's other ways to get that in different pieces of equipment that are much more biomechanically sound or much more programmable. So to me, that one's pretty funny just because it, yeah, because of what it looks like people are doing when they're using it. So I get a chuckle out of that one whenever I get to see it. Um, I will say, and this is probably a podcast for a different day. Along that question, the things that, mm, I'm trying to think how to say this. The things that I think we, you need to be more careful of almost is things like the thigh master, things like the shake weight, things like the perfect push up. I mean, there's almost a bit of parody going on there. Like you watch the infomercials and you're like, you, you almost get a little bit of a chuckle. It's like a, almost a little tongue in cheek, if you will. But there's a lot more, quote unquote, serious at home, you know, machines or or fitness videos. Like, I think those are the ones you actually have to be more careful of, um, you know, not to pick on anybody in particular, but things like the Bowflex, which is not, I don't want to make it sound like it's a terrible, evil, awful thing, or they're an awful company because they're not, but it's a machine that's selling isolated training. That's a type of training that's not going to benefit anybody. Um, uh, that, that's a vast statement. It's not going to have the same type of benefits that more functional type movement's going to have. So 
I think there's a lot of infomercial-based fitness products that are kind of wolf in sheep's clothing. And there's a lot of stuff that hmm, uses big words to sound smart, even though what they're talking about is complete nonsense. So <laughs> there's a lot of terms that have been coined in different types. And I don't want to use any specifically because I don't want to pick on any ones in specific right now. Maybe I will a little bit in the future, but... When you really look at some of the vernacular, some of the science behind aspects of training, you'll notice there's a lot of these at-home things, pieces of equipment, DVDs. They use big scientific sounding words, but they're not actually saying anything or communicating anything of value. It's just stuff that sounds like it's legitimate, but it's really not. So I think those are the things to more be careful of. And honestly, when I really get a chuckle, it's more when you're hearing terms like that. Like, oh, hey, guys, we got that muscle confusion going on. I'm like, the only confusion I have is why we're doing this exercise, because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in terms of how the body moves. So I think those are the things to be a little bit more careful of is because they're trying to kind of they're trying to be more sneaky. Um hiding, whereas it's, it's pretty clear that the shake weight's just kind of funny. So um, question number two from Mr. Steve, what is the most underrated exercise and overrated exercise that people should be doing and shouldn't be doing? I think that's a great question. One of the most underrated exercises, in my opinion, that we do quite often are what we call loaded carries. Well, that's just what they're called. So I mean, I don't want to make it sound like we invented them or anything. We've most of the stuff we do here, we've stolen from people way smarter than me. So um, uh, we, we, farmers carries, rat carries, overhead carries. We do a lot of stuff with kettlebells, sandbags, asymmetrical loads, carrying even weight in both hands, carrying a weight just on one side. Um, kind of back to that, what we call like dynamic core stability, learning how to set and maintain a brace neutral spine while going through a gait pattern and constantly having the weight shifting and changing and, and direction of force changing on the body. Those are some of the simplest exercises that you can do that are so unbelievably beneficial, functional. They're incredibly scalable. Uh, they can work for a number of different audiences. You can make them extremely complex. You can make them very, very simple. Um, my favorite thing about all of them is that they're what we call a self-limiting activity, meaning you do them right, and if you don't do them right, they give you feedback on it. You're gonna lose balance, you're not gonna walk a straight line. So they're very easy to monitor things. It's easy to see if someone's weight is too heavy, it's easy to see if they're losing posture, it's easy to feel those things. So, but they're not sexy, right? They're not, they're, those types of exercises are never anything that's gonna show up on a, an Under Armour commercial. So I, I think for that reason, they, they're very underrated. Um, so carries would be some of my absolute favorites. I think ones that are, I'll tell you, my most favoritist, most underrated, and I, you can't even call this an exercise because it's not, is breathing. Spending a few minutes a day to just focus on learning how to get into your diaphragm and breathe, what that can do for you and how that can multiply everything else you do, how that can help create better core stability, better trunk awareness, better power, better speed, better endurance. It is the single best thing you can do, and especially when we're talking core stability, endurance, power, speed, we never talk about breathing. And I think it is, you can't get any better. So, I mean, to spend just a couple few minutes a day, whether that be in a yoga practice or just lying on the ground at home in a quiet space and focus on getting into your diaphragm and just focusing on breathing, is the single best thing that you could ever do for any aspect of your health, fitness, and performance. And it's never talked about. Um, so I'm gonna amend my answer to, but the, eh, it's not an amendment, because again, breathing, I wouldn't even consider that an exercise. It's just something you should do. So, but focusing on and being mindful and practicing mindful breathing just a couple minutes a day is I think a force multiplier that would benefit absolutely everybody. And if you're not doing it, you should be, because it's, something that can make everything better. The most overrated, I'm gonna go with burpees because it's something that makes its way into almost every gym and every workout across the country. Um, and just to get the record straight, I actually don't have a biomechanical issue with burpees. So there's certain exercises that I just, 
don't like because when you look at how they the positions they put the body in or how they make the body move doesn't seem to jive with what I would consider to be healthy or functional movement. Burpees don't fall into that category. I think if everything's working perfectly, there's a lot of benefit to the burpee. However, the amount of times that you see someone who has all the physical capabilities necessary to perform a burpee perfectly is pretty low. And then when you do them at such high volume and such high fatigue, I guess my point is 99.9% of the time, burpees look like garbage. So they shouldn't be done to the level that they're done at. I know for us here and looking at our clientels and our members, based on their movement screens, the percentage of people we have that have the movement capabilities to be able to even do a burpee properly is less than 10%. So if only 10% of our clientele can do this exercise, does it make sense for it to be in 80% of our workouts? I think the answer is no. Um, And then again, for those people that can do it well, how many can they do? Can they do 50 perfectly in a row? Can they do sets of 10 in a row? Or are we going to start to see fatigue and breakdown? So it's not that I think it's a bad exercise. I just think it's way overused. I think it's extremely complex. And I think most of the people doing them um, maybe don't have all the movement capabilities necessary to be able to do that thing properly. So I think we need to back off a little bit focus on some of the fundamental aspects of a very complex movement like that and build up towards it. So just for a second, set the record straight. I don't hate the exercise. I just think it's way, way, way overdone. And I think it's often given to people who should be focusing on other things. So I hope that one helps there. Um, (laughs) uh, So do uh, Mary, whose last name shall be remain nameless, passive aggressive workout attire options motivate you to increase the workouts, therefore prompting her to find more creative options? I think yes. So <laughs> um, it's a little bit of an inside joke, people. I'm sorry. But uh, there are a, a few of our very, very wonderful members that have some some subtle and some not so subtle pieces of workout attire that let me know how they're feeling on a particular day or about a particular workout. And in short, I enjoy those things. They bring a smile to my face, continue to wear them because they make me happy. So thank you for that. Um, Ooh, I'm going to say, Steve, I'm going to say your last question for a different podcast because uh, this one is asking both Sam and I a question and it's just me today. So I'm going to come back to that one. So no offense, my friend, but uh, I'm going to say that one for a different day because it's a good one. So to be continued. Uh, two more that I want to hit before we head out here. So one is from Amber. Best physical therapy exercise to alleviate golfer and tennis elbow. And then she goes on to say, I despise both of those terms because she doesn't do either. So what I'm reading into that is suffering a little bit of either tennis elbow or golfer's elbow, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And this is a person who doesn't golf and doesn't play tennis. So the reason it's called golfer's elbow or tennis elbow is the pain that we experience in the elbow from those type of activities can often surround uh, an imbalance between the flexors and extenders of the hand. So basically when you spend a lot of time in that aggressive closed grip position and you're constantly hammering on the flexors in the forearm, what that does to put the elbow out of balance because we're not giving adequate movement in position to the extensors of the hand or the muscles that open up the hand. So the hand is built to open and close. Whenever you take any joint in the body and you stick it in a particular position and you leave in that position for long, long, long periods of time or excessive periods of time, it's going to aggravate other things just because it's out of whack. It's out of balance. So that's where the name golfer's elbow or tennis elbows come from is We see it in those populations a lot because of the excessive gripping of the tennis racket or the gripping of the golf club and then the repetition, repetition, repetition around that in that very close hand position. Um, However, you don't have to be a golfer or a tennis player to get that because if you think about even professionals and nine to fivers that spend an excessive amount of time on a keyboard, that is going to be more of that closed hand position. We're basically just not getting the hands to open up. 
and it's gonna create an asymmetry or an imbalance within the hands, which can start to stem into the elbows. Another thing that we find is a lot of issues in the wrist and or the elbow also stem from the shoulder. So if we're lacking thoracic mobility, if we're lacking any type of shoulder mobility, when I say shoulder mobility, that's a tricky one. And, and I still haven't figured out the best way to kind of dive into this conversation. But when we say shoulder, there's a lot of things going on there. So you have your thoracic vertebrae that are supposed to articulate. They're supposed to flex, extend, and rotate. You have the ribs sitting on the thoracic vertebrae that are supposed to articulate. You have the scapula or the shoulder blade sitting on top of the ribs that has a certain amount of articulation but can go too much and start to destabilize. You have the glenohumeral joint where the humerus meets into the scapula and there should be a certain amount of articulation there. And then you have everything downstream into there. And we didn't even kind of really touch on when we're looking at that thoracic region and complex and how the shoulder blade moves there's some like the, the AC joint and we get into the collarbones as we start to move in towards the front of the body. There's a lot of subtlety and nuance around the shoulder. But to simplify, one of the biggest things that we want to check the box on and make sure that we have is what we call thoracic mobility. So if you think of the cornerstone of shoulder mobility rests on the capability for the thoracic spine to move and go through its ranges of motion, which is flexion, extension, rotation generally. Um, if the thoracic spine is locked up, that has a lot of negative implications downstream. So what we tend to do is if someone has issues with elbow, issue with wrist, anything downstream, we want to look at the shoulder complex and see what's going on there. It's very, very often that when someone comes in and we take them through an FMS, it, it, how do I want to phrase this? It's very common that if someone comes in and is complaining of some sort of wrist or elbow pain, that we also see on their functional movement screen that we're limited in shoulder mobility. So there's a huge correlation there. It's happened many, many, many times before that if we can alleviate, if we can improve mobility within the shoulder girdle, within the shoulder complex, that pain in the elbow and or wrist starts to subside or completely go away over time. Now, also that being said, we've had some active individuals in the past who were suffering from some elbow tendonitis, not diagnosed, um, tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, whatever you want to call it, pain in the elbow. And when you looked at the workout program they were doing, there was a lot of curls, a lot of tricep work, a lot of isolated joint action type stuff there that all was doing was making that angry or feeding some of those imbalances within the hand that we had talked about earlier. When we got rid of some of those isolation elbow type exercises and then started focusing on increasing shoulder mobility, magically this tennis elbow, this golfer's elbow started to go away. So to answer your question, um, it's hard to say specifically what exercises because we haven't had a chance to screen an individual. So I'm never going to give someone specific exercise, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, drawing a blank people. Um, let's call it prescriptions for lack of a better term. So I, recommendations, I'm not going to give anybody any specific exercise recommendations without taking them through a screen first, because sometimes things showcase in different ways. Uh, you could have low back pain because of hip mobility issues, or you could be running into low back pain because of shoulder mobility issues. The exercises that we would recommend for those things are completely different, even though the quote unquote symptoms of back pain are the same in both of those persons. When I say back pain, I'm specifically talking low back or lumbar. So without screening someone, it's really hard to say. If I were to screen someone who had elbow pain and they also have shoulder mobility issues, we're going to start there and we're going to work on can we mobilize the shoulders? Can we mobilize the thoracic spine? Once we've mobilized the thoracic spine, can we start to focus on stabilizing the scapula and progress on through there? We're going to look at certain movements. We're going to look at how they're performing them. Uh, we want to mobilize the area first and then we want to start focusing on what we call motor control, which is more stability or teaching certain joints, how to get into good positions and how to hold those positions when we start moving in other joints, if that makes sense. Um, but let's say that person comes in and they don't have shoulder mobility issues. That's going to be a completely different set of strategies to try and address the elbow. The other thing is there's certain 
areas within the screen that we're looking for pain. And if pain is present, it might mean that physical therapy or some other medical intervention is more appropriate at this time because something is broke, something is wrong, something needs more specialized attention than we can have. So the, the, the standard kind of cookie cutter answer I give to any of specific questions like this, um, it, you know, a lot of my rambling has been just trying to better understand what's going on there when we're talking about quote unquote tennis elbow. But whenever we get these types of questions, step number one is to take someone through a screen. So at least we're dealing with personalized information and we can figure out what is going to be the best way to help treat this. And then, and I, I, I treat, I say that word loosely, like treatment is not what we do here, right? Treatment is something that happens with much more qualified individuals, but um, it helps us develop a plan to try and improve this area, this thing. We're also going to look at daily activities. What can we alleviate from there? What types of daily activities might be making this worse? What things can we change? And that's going to start that whole conversation. So Amber, this is also kind of a cop-out answer, but um, you know, without having some of those detailed pieces of information, it's really hard to make a specific recommendation. I would say looking at getting screened is step number one and then having a better um, better understanding of what is going to be that personalized approach to go through there because how we get to that point of elbow pain differs in a number of different people and how we can alleviate it also differs drastically depending on why why is it there. Um, you know, back to what we were talking about, pain versus suffering. If pain is a smoke alarm, the smoke alarm just tells you there is a fire. It doesn't tell you where the fire is or how the fire got started. So that smoke alarm going off lets us know that there is a fire. Now we have to gather information and do some detective work to try and figure out where is the fire, how did the fire get started, and what are the best methods to putting out the fire. And that's kind of where we're at right now. So um, I hope that helped a little bit. And last question is kind of along those same lines. Uh, best exercise to accommodate rotator cuff tendonitis and which exercises to avoid if you have it? So the first part of that question, see question previous. So that entire rambling that I just went through regarding getting screened in the whole nine yards, I think that's going to be very applicable to exercises, the best exercises for any type of rotator cuff um, issues, things of that nature. I will say just to just to touch on that a little bit, rotator cuff gets a bad rap, right? So a lot of times if we're having any type of shoulder pain or discomfort, it's rotator cuff, rotator cuff, rotator cuff. Your rotator cuffed is actually made up of four different muscles that help support the, the, the head of the humerus as it fits into the scapula and support joint action in what we call the glenohumeral joint or the GH. So... These are small stabilizers and guys that work to help center and move that particular joint. They're surrounded by bigger muscles that actually help produce force um, and, and drive more significant actions within the shoulders. So think of your rotator cuff as more of the stabilizing structure around the glenohumeral. And some of your bigger muscles like the pecs and the lats and some of the supporting cast are going to be more of your prime movers. So... Often when there's an issue with the shoulder, the rotator cuff gets blamed. We need to figure, I mean, and again, there's four muscles that make up the rotator cuff. So we can't just say, we, it's not a group. Um, if you've ever seen Armageddon, there's that little thing where Owen Wilson's talking about, I hate it when they say like Jethro Tull is like the name of a guy. He's like, Jethro Tull's the band. It's kind of the same thing. Like the rotator cuff is the name of the band. There's specific players within that band. When we start getting into the weeds about you know who in that band might be overactive, underactive, not pulling their weight, that's more of a physical therapy conversation. That's not a training conversation. We want to, by the time we get to this environment, we need to assume because, again, we can assume if we're pain-free that at least they're active and they're doing their job to an extent. Maybe can we help improve their functionality, improve their efficiency? That's where the training aspect comes in. So... That being said, if we have issues within the shoulder, and I don't want to just limit these to quote-unquote rotator cuff issues, if we're having shoulder issues, over loaded overhead movements are no bueno. So generally issues with the shoulder, even stability issues, 
are going to showcase or highlight as some sort of lack of range of motion. If we're missing any range of motion in the shoulder, or even if we're hypermobile in the shoulder, that can make loaded overhead motions extremely stressful on other areas that we don't want to stress. So generally things to avoid in this type of situation are loaded overhead movements. Any type of overhead pressing, anytime we're putting any weight overhead, that's something we want to be extremely careful of. We also want to be careful of excessive, what we call horizontal pressing. So when you're doing a bench press or a push-up, something like that, that's what we call a horizontal press. So heavy push-ups, long duration planks, anything that's going to stress that complex are things that we want to start to avoid. Um, now, it doesn't mean that you can't do some of those exercises. Just the thinking is the more fatigued we get in that area, fatigue never improves function. So if that helps. So I want to avoid excessive fatigue in those type of exercises because it's not going to make it function better. It's probably going to wear it down a little bit more. So um, heavy overhead pressing, overhead pressing with high volumes, excessive horizontal pressing, long duration planks. We can do planks. We can do scapular stability stuff. We just want to make sure that we're staying fresh with it. We can even do lots of sets. We're just going to keep the reps very low and we're going to make sure that there's plenty of rest time in between. So um, whenever we have an area that's not working as well as we'd like it to, we want to help correct that area. We don't want to condition that area. So if you have a crack in your foundation, you don't want to build another story on your house. Conditioning is adding stories to the house. We want to fix the crack in the foundation before we start that. So always think if something's not working the way you want it to, or if we know that there's something that the FMS showed us is, is not working the way we want it to, the goal is to correct, whether that be improved mobility, improved stability, or both. We don't want to condition. At this point, once we have made adequate corrections and we've improved the movement capability within that pattern, that area, now we can start to get into conditioning, which is adding strength, adding endurance, and all those other things. So I hope that helped, Nicole. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that one. Last one was from Nicole. So thanks. Uh, you guys, thank you so much for submitting your questions. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I got to be honest, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I like talking about this stuff. I love hearing where you guys are coming from and questions that you have re regarding these types of things. And it really helps us to drive our content to make sure it's stuff that you guys are going to find useful and beneficial. So, um, you know, last thing, right? We had one more and this was not a question that was submitted. It was a question that I got a phone call on from um, uh, someone who was doing a story for, for a local news. And the question they had was, um, you know, tips, tricks to staying fit, staying healthy through the holidays, exercises you can do at home, da, 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 da. And I know they weren't happy with my answer, which was enjoy the holidays. <laughs> I really kind of hate how we get into this roller coaster around the holiday times where, you know, we go off the deep end and then we try and get back on track and then we fall off again and we get back on and... I, I, so I've been working full-time in the fitness industry since 2006. And every year, we see a lot of people fall off around November, December. And then we see tons of people show up in January. And then they fall off again in February. And they come back a little bit in March. And then the weather gets nice and they fall off again. And then the fall, they want to get back on. It, so <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> this whole idea of you know, trying to, I, I don't know, I don't even know where to begin on this one, but I just feel, I mean, and all I can do is base this on my personal experience. The pendulum has to swing both ways. So my life, especially when I was doing amateur bodybuilding competitions, I found it very easy to live in extremes, but living in extremes is not a healthy way to go about it. So I find that if people just just because it's the holidays doesn't mean that you stop moving, you stop working out, you stop training. It doesn't mean you put all these things on hold. It doesn't mean that you eat everything that comes across your plate and in front of your face. It also doesn't mean that you have to go crazy come January 1st and turn all that stuff off and work out 18 times a day. I think our goal is to always strive for moderation. And moderation means that on Thanksgiving, eat food, enjoy yourself, have fun. If you're at a Christmas party, eat fudge. I don't care, right? <laughs> just, 
just don't eat so crazy much that you don't train for the next week, two weeks and fall off hard and then have to guilt yourself into it. And that's another thing is that, you know, regarding exercise and regarding eating, especially around the holiday times, I feel like there's so much shame and, and guilt pressuring around it. And I don't think that helps anybody either. So are you going to be a little bit better off mentally if you just allow yourself these indulgences and enjoy it, but then get back on and, and just try to find that happy medium? You know, maybe during the holidays, you, you, you get to eat a little bit more. You get to indulge a little bit more, but you stay consistent with the other things that you're doing. Or maybe that helps you stay a little bit tighter within your eating during the week. I don't know. It's different for everybody. But I do know that this whole idea of you know, guilting people to not indulge during the holidays, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work because we see all these people fall off during the holidays and guilting them doesn't seem to bring them back in. And then we try and go crazy come January 1st. And that doesn't work because most of the people fall off by the end of February. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I just know that what we've been trying to do regarding the holidays and this kind of feast and famine approach hasn't been working um, for us as an industry for a long time. So maybe maybe try a different approach, I guess, would be my only advice there and not perpetuating some of these stereotypes of, well, you know, the stuffing has this many calories and you have to do this much to work it off. I think that's a very guilt-ridden, shame-heavy approach to trying to stay fit and healthy during the holidays and I don't see that serving a lot of people. So I'm gonna get off my soapbox now and we'll, uh, we'll call that one an episode. Again, I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you are liking the podcast, we've talked in the past about ways you can support it. You can share it, you can rate it, you can review it. All those help us out immensely and is a great way to support. Uh, another way you can support is if you have questions, if you have topics, talk to us, email us. If you have follow-ups on any of these, if you wanna share any thoughts, uh, info at performancelocker.com is the best way to get a hold of us and you can email anything you'd like about the show. You can also send us messages on the Performance Locker Facebook page or the Performance Locker Instagram. You can find any and all that stuff at the website performancelocker.com and that'll be the best way to get in touch with us regarding anything you want. So uh, thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Take care.